So this is where we find ourselves this morning as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians. Before we dive into that, I did just want to kind of highlight a few of the things that you saw this morning. Uh, in particular, for the men of the church, we really hope that if you are at all able to come to the men's retreat in a few weeks, that you'll sign up and do that. Again, don't let money be any kind of an obstacle for that. I think that will be a sweet time for our family, for the, our faith family, for the, the men of this church in particular. Hope you can do that. And also, if you've never talked to Matt Rye about the ministry there at Crew, you've heard a little bit about it this morning. I just want to encourage you to go after and just talk with them. Let them know that you're praying for him. And if you'd like to learn more about that ministry, please do pursue that. He's seeking to do a really good work, a gospel-centered work, and a place that desperately needs it. So let's be sure to be praying for him, for his family in that. Well, this morning we're continuing to look at the book of Ephesians together. We're going to look most especially at what a a worthy walk looks like, uh, a walk which is a a day-by-day life. Uh, that is worthy of the calling that we received as believers and as a thought about a way to kind of introduce a sermon this morning. I thought about the fact that in the physical world, the nature of a thing really determines how it behaves. Uh, So my family, uh, we uh, saw some examples of this recently. We went to the Philadelphia Zoo together uh, on this recent vacation that we took, and it was really kind of amazing to look at the complexity of God's creation, all the different creatures So we saw the monkeys, you know, they're climbing and playing. And we saw the penguins who are swimming and waddling. And I was particularly fascinated and a little terrified by the king cobra. uh, Because, as we all know, it is the nature of snakes to bite. And I don't want to be on the receiving end of a king cobra bite anytime in the future. Birds fly, fish swim, men and women, we walk on two legs. Because the nature of a thing in this world, it determines the way we behave. It's true in this physical world, but it's also true in terms of the spiritual world. Our fundamental nature determines how we live. That's the message you see as you read through the Bible. Uh, In other words, who you are in your heart, who you are before God, will determine the way you live this life. So those who do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says they're dead in their trespasses and sins. So they don't love God, and they certainly don't want to live for Him, and they don't want to serve them. Instead, they want to serve themselves as they go through life. Those who are born again, those who have a saving relationship with God, well, they also, and here's the thing, they behave according to their new nature. That's what you see as you read through the Bible. That there really is a distinction, that there really is a difference, that something dramatic happens when a person passes from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that that reality impacts the way that man or woman lives from that time on. What before was hatred is replaced with love. And so while sin impedes us, while sin makes it difficult, we really do truly love the things that God loves and we hate the things that God hates. And so we haltingly, but we truly do seek to live for God in this quickly dying world. Well, for the past few months, we've been studying this book of Ephesians and we've noted just kind of the wonder of what it says about what it means to be a Christian, that we've passed from death to life, that that God has this magnificent plan that he's working out in history, and he is sovereignly and surely fulfilling his plans in history. And part of his plans is working in the lives of individuals, bringing them out of a place of rebellion against him to a place where they love him, to a place where they want to to live for him. Those that have been saved have been given a new nature. And we've seen, I think in a special way in Ephesians, that those that have a relationship with God through Jesus, they have a new identity. And so it will make a difference in the way that we live. As we're going to see this morning in this passage, 
it should impact the way we live, uh, that we have an obligation before God, that we're commanded by God to live distinctly, to live differently in this life. We should live in a manner worthy of the gospel that has saved us. So we're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. Last week we spent a lot of time really just focusing our hearts on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And we said that those two brief verses are really a fitting response to all that we've seen. So the God who is sovereignly working out his purposes in history, uh, the God who has brought people from spiritual death to the point of spiritual life, the God who has brought people from all kinds of different backgrounds all around the world into a relationship with him and into a relationship with one another where they're part of the same spiritual body, the church, that God is worthy of praise. And that's what we saw as we studied last week. We saw Paul just really break forth and praise to our God. And that's the privilege for us to praise him in that same way. Well, this morning we're, we're coming to really a major break in this letter, this book of Ephesians. Uh, all the time leading up to this, what Paul's been doing is he's been unpacking doctrine. He's been unpacking theology, propositional truth about what is. And now at this point in the book, he's going to transition. He's going to begin to talk about really kind of the practical implications. You know, the so what. We've talked about the what. Now we're going to talk about the so what. He's going to open up for us the difference that it should make that we are who we are in Christ. And this is always Paul's pattern. If you've read through Paul's uh, letters in the New Testament, you know that, that he has this pattern of beginning with sound doctrine and then moving from that teaching for that instruction to really practical application. And he does that because he knows that we live according to what we truly believe. What we truly believe deep down, that determines the way that we live. And so Paul is a, he's a master at applying doctrine to our hearts so that we see the implications of the truth that we believe so that we live distinctly, so that we live in a way that matches who we truly are in Christ. So this is a transition in the letter. Paul's turning from doctrine or theology or truth now to practice and application. And really, in this passage, verses 1 to 6, he's going to describe for us what a worthy life looks like, a life that's worthy of the calling that we've been called to as believers. In particular, we're going to see one really kind of primary emphases in these letters, one primary emphasis in, in these verses, is that, that Paul wants us to, to walk in unity, and that's because we really are one. There's this essential oneness, there's this essential unity among believers, and that should impact the way we live together as a church. There's a lot of ways we could look at these verses this morning, but I want us just to kind of look at these verses together and see two primary truths that flow out of them. You, you'll see those if you have the handout that was given to you. This morning, two truths from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. The first truth is that a worthy walk will lead to unity in the church. We'll see that from verses 1 to 3. And then we'll see, secondly, that Christian unity is rooted in theological realities. We'll see that from verses 4 to 6. Let's look at those, that first truth then together this morning, verses 1 to 3 there. A worthy walk will lead to unity in the church. That's what Paul says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you notice as Paul begins his application, he reminds these readers who he is. He describes himself there. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. 
Now, one might think that Paul, being in prison, might be ashamed of that fact, but he's not. He's not ashamed of it at all. Instead, he sees suffering for the Lord as something that's uh, really a badge of honor. So he understands that he's no longer free to go about kind of the Roman Empire and share Jesus with other people, but he also understands that what he is doing is significant because he's doing it for the Lord. Even this point in his life where he is suffering is significant because his suffering is ultimately for the Lord, and he saw he saw his suffering as a part of his worship of Jesus. And I think that would make a huge difference for us if we thought about ourselves in that way as well. Now, wherever Paul was, he was doing it for the Lord. So if he was an apostle going about, he was doing that for the Lord, right? If he was a, a missionary there sharing the gospel, he was doing that for the Lord. Even if he was a prisoner in prison in Rome, well, he was doing that for the Lord as well. So my question is, what about you? Where are you this morning? What are you doing this morning? Uh, wh- where, where are you in life? So are you a teacher? Are you a doctor? Are you a businessman or businesswoman? Are you a housewife, mother? Are you retired? Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, God has called you to do that for him. You do that for the Lord. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. At the same time, look again at verse 1 and notice that word, therefore, there. It's an important word. When you're studying the Bible on your own during the week, you come across a therefore. You should always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And in this case, the therefore, it connects us with what's come before. It connects us really with all of chapter 1 to 3, all the truth that we've seen before. So again, Paul's laid out all of this doctrine, and now he's going to say, therefore, and the indication is that now we're going to move into application of this truth. Now we're going to talk about what difference it makes. He says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what's that calling? Ultimately, that calling is the call to salvation. So think about what we've seen over the last few uh, weeks and months as we've studied this epistle together. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that believers have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a tremendous statement if that's true it's a tremendous statement and of course it is believers have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life in christ that's the claim of chapter 2 verses 4 to 5 that's another tremendous blessing that we've received believers have been made a part of the one people of god from every generation and from every place all united together into this thing we call the church and this church is described as the family of god so there's intimacy there's love there between us and god And we're described as the temple of God in the sense that there's this holiness as well uh, that that should be seen visible in our lives. And believers have become a part of God's plan to display his glorious wisdom to angelic power. So we have... We have a a real answer to the question, why is there anything at all? And the answer is because God is displaying his glory throughout history and he's displaying his glorious wisdom in a particular way through a group of people who he's taken from a place of hatred and animosity and he's brought them together into this new society, this new humanity, and together they're living in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus who saved them. That's what he's doing in the world. It's what he's been doing since the very beginning. This is the calling that we've received then. It's this calling into a relationship with God. These are staggering claims. To be saved from spiritual death, brought into spiritual life, to be brought from a place of enmity. And it's a word that kind of means warfare with God, kind of a hostility towards God. 
yeah, there may be a God, but I don't particularly care. I don't want to know him, and I, I don't particularly need him. Uh, to a place where we understand, wow, this, this God is good. And he's for me in this amazing way. And now we've become part of this unified worldwide community so that if I travel to Egypt or if I travel to Romania or Turkey or China and I meet someone who follows Jesus, there's this automatic deep connection, deep unity because we're all a part of the same family. These are the privileges we've received. This is the calling to which we've been called. And now in verse 1, Paul's saying that we should walk worthy of that. That word walk is important. It's the idea of living day by day. So each and every day of our lives, we are really walking with God, and we should walk in a particular way. We should walk in a worthy way. The word that's translated worthy, the Greek word that's translated worthy, really uh, it refers to this idea of, of kind of bringing up the other beam of a scale. In other words, bringing up balance in a scale. It indicates this balance. So Paul's saying there should be a balance between who we are and how we live, who we are in Christ and the way that we live. So we're saying that God's people made alive in Christ, joined to one another in Christ, who have the Spirit of God living within them. These people should live differently, distinctly. All this truth should impact the way we live. Now, I want you to notice something before we kind of dive into the description that he gives us of what this worthy life looks like. I just want you to notice the way Paul motivates the Ephesians to live for God. Paul does not say, hey, guys, do you want God to like you and approve of you? If so, you need to do this and this and this. You know, that's really kind of the, the fundamental ethic of every other religion out there. It's if you want God to like you, you need to do this and then you need to do this and then you need to do this. That is not the ethic of the New Testament. That's not Paul's ethic. That's not what you see as you read through the New Testament. Instead, what does Paul do? Paul says this, Consider the greatness of your calling to salvation. You are called of God. You are redeemed. Now live like who you are. In other words, here's this glorious good news about who you are because of Jesus. Look at what God has done for you. Now you live like it. Live in a way that's worthy of this glorious call. John MacArthur said, the Lord expects us to act like the new persons we have become in Jesus Christ. He expects his standards to become our standards, his purposes, our purposes, his desires, our desires, his nature, our nature. The Christian life is simply the process of becoming what you are. So, brothers, the next time you're tempted to use angry words with your spouse or children, remember who you are. Now, the next time that you're tempted to look at immoral images on a screen, remember who you are. The next time you're fearful to share the gospel, the gospel that saved you with someone else, remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ and then live like who you are. That's really the ethic that you see here. This is, this is what Paul's teaching us here. Now, verses 2 and 3, Paul spells out for us what this worthy life looks like. So what does it look like? What, is a, what does a worthy life look like? Well, he gives us... Really, for the rest of Ephesians, that's what we're going to see. From verses 4 to 6, we're going to see this really kind of this long explanation of what a worthy life looks like. But here at the beginning, Paul lists five, and I'm going to call them graces, five characteristics, five graces that he wants to see developed and manifest in the life of these Ephesian believers. And of course, it's not just these Ephesian believers, but it's, it's all who follow Jesus from all time. 
And together we're going to notice that all of these five graces really serve to promote the unity of the church, which is what Paul is really most focused at at this point, focused on at this point. Let's look at these five graces together. The first grace you see is with all humility. The word humility there is from a Greek word that means to think lowly. Uh, it has the idea of lowering oneself, of thinking about oneself less and thinking about others more. It's very possible that Christians, maybe even Paul himself, invented this word. It's not sure, but it's possible that they did because the Greeks despised this mindset of humility. It was abhorrent to them. But what man despises, God, God esteems. And that's what James 4, 6 says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's humility that will make really for, for God honoring relationships in the church because it's humility that teaches us not to be concerned about ourselves and to be concerned about our rights, but instead to be concerned about others and how we can help others and bless others. And so it really frees us up to value and serve and love God and others. In contrast, pride always destroys unity in a church. John Calvin said, where do quarrels, insults, reproaches come from? Do they not come from this, that everyone loves himself? and is concerned about his own interest too much. By laying aside pride and the desire to please ourselves, we shall become meek and gentle and acquire that evenness of temper which overlooks and forgives the many failings of others. So in the church, pride is our enemy because it teaches us to think about me and not you. Humility is our friend because it teaches me to be concerned about you and let God take care of me. In his commentary on this passage, James Boyce, he really included what I thought was a helpful illustration of what humility looks like. I wanted just to share that with you. He wrote this. He said, Watchman Nee of China tells of a brother in South China who had his rice field on a hill. During the growing season, he used a hand-worked water wheel to lift water from the irrigation stream that ran by the base of the hill to his field. His neighbor had two fields below his, and one night he made a hole in the dividing wall and drained out all the Christian's water to fill up his own two fields. The brother was distressed, but he laboriously pumped water into his own field again, only to have the act of stealing repeated. This happened three or four times. At last, he consulted his Christian brethren, what shall I do? I've tried to be patient and not retaliate. Isn't it right for me to confront him? And this is where I, I was just really convicted and helped by this. The Christians prayed. That's a good step one, right? The Christians prayed, and then one of them replied, if we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians. He said, we have to do something more than what is right. The Christian farmer was impressed with this advice, so the next day he went out and first pumped water for the two fields below his, and then after that worked throughout the afternoon to fill his own field. From that day, the water stayed in his field. And in time, the neighbor, after making inquiries as to what caused him to behave in such a fashion, became a Christian. This is humility. It's refusing to insist on our own rights and actually putting our neighbor's interest before our own. Isn't that a wonderful picture of what humility looks like? Not being concerned about me, but being concerned about serving you, not standing up for my own rights, but instead humbling myself before you in order to do you good this Chinese brother's humility was just evident, and God used it in the life of this other man to bring him to a relationship with Jesus. And here's the thing. Humility can accomplish great things in a local church. It can just free us up from this desire to be served and instead free us up to serve one another and to love one another in ways that we need. So how can we grow in humility? I think this is such an important point. 
we can't, by willpower, make ourselves more humble. This is really something that God must produce in us. How does he produce it in us? He produces it in us this way, by teaching us to look at God and his glory and his greatness. And in light of who God is thinking about ourselves, that we're passing, that we're transitory, and that he's been so good to us. In that way, we, we see ourselves rightly. And we have this appropriate humility. And so we can have this appropriate humility before other people. Why? Because God has shown us who he is and who we are. And this humility will produce in us a godly gentleness. Gentleness is what you see next when you look at verse 2. It says, and gentleness. Uh, that word gentleness can also be translated meekness. It doesn't refer to weakness. It really refers to power under control. So think about a, a horse. Uh, if you have a horse that's been broken, you know that the horse has lost none of its strength, but now it's under the control of the rider so that it goes where the rider wants him to go. That's a picture then of, of meekness. In the same way, a gentle person is someone whose power is under the control of God. The gentle person is considerate of others and is restrained when wronged by others. Recently, I've been reading through 1 Samuel, and you see a picture of this kind of gentleness or meekness in the life of David. So, so David is hunted by Saul, who's the king at this point, who wants to kill David. And he's hunting him all throughout, all throughout Israel and into the wilderness even. And at two different occasions, God permits Saul to fall into David's hands so that if David wanted to kill Saul, he could. But instead, because David's power was under God's control, he did not put out his hand and he didn't kill Saul. Instead, he said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. There's this gentleness there. And do you see how this disposition of gentleness leads to patience? David was patient. That's the third grace that you see. Look in verse 2 again. With patience. Patience really speaks of the ability to suffer long, for a long time. So the patient person is a person who will not immediately give up in the face of adversity, but instead will endure. And the patient person is a person who will not retaliate immediately when he's wronged. A patient person is someone that can take it. A patient person is really like God. And what's God like? Well, God describes himself as slow to anger. And the one who possesses patience will be able to bear with others. And that's what you see next. It's really kind of the fourth grace that you see there in verse 3, bearing with one another in love. Now, to bear with someone is to put up with their faults and their weaknesses and their sins. Uh, most practically, it's this. It's to refuse to write them off. And I think that's a temptation for all of us, isn't it? Someone crosses us once and we think, oh, okay, maybe. Someone crosses us against and we think, fine. No problem. I'm just going to pretend like you don't exist, Right? Bearing with one another in love doesn't do that. Even when our emotions tell us that we are justified in writing someone else off, no, instead, love teaches us that we need to move towards that brother or towards that sister in order to seek a right relationship, right? And, and notice that that's how we do this bearing thing. It's bearing with one another in love. Love is at the root of a God-honoring relationship in the church. So you see love there, but, but I want you to notice that love isn't where Paul ends. It's not ultimately where Paul goes in this passage. Instead, Paul emphasizes unity. So let me ask you this question. What is going to be the result 
of having a group of people who are characterized by these things, characterized by humility, by gentleness, by patience, and by a loving forbearance. What's going to happen in that group of people? Well, they're going to be unified. They're going to be at one with each other. They're going to live together in peace. There will be this God-glorifying unity among them. Now, here's my question. What then is this unity? We all know kind of what unity is. But I think Paul spells out really clearly what he means by unity in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 2. Here's how Paul describes really the kind of a unity that he's talking about. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So unity is this singleness of mind, this, this singleness of heart, uh, this singleness of, of mission. As we together are seeking to serve the Lord, it really binds us together in a way that helps us be one, which is actually who we truly are. Don't you want that for this church? Yeah, don't you want this church to be marked by this kind of unity? This, this unity is really what Paul is urging these Ephesian believers to pursue. Look at verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word translated eager there means to make haste. It's run after, be zealous towards us, be diligent in pursuing actively this characteristic of unity, unity of the Spirit, we need to understand, though, that there will be difficulty here. If you've been in the, in the church or in local churches for any period of time, you know that, that Satan, uh, the pull of this world, our own sinful kind of hearts, work against this unity that we're talking about this morning. They constantly conspire to destroy the unity of the church. And many of us have lived through seasons where there was disunity, which is a hard thing. And that's why Paul calls us, as the people of God, living together in a, in a church to pursue actively this kind of God-glorifying unity. So here's the thing. It's not enough to just kind of sit back and not be a cause of disunity, is it? That's the negative, but we're not called to the negative. We're called to the positive. And what's the positive? It's we're called to seek after, to promote unity in the body. We're supposed to actively pursue a Holy Spirit-given unity in the church through prayer and through living together in obedience to God's word. That's how we're supposed to pursue this. And what's the end result of this going to be? Well, it's going to be peace. He talks about this bond, which is this belt or this sash of peace that kind of binds everything together, and God's peace will do that. You know, as I thought about that this week, as I thought about our church, I just want you to know how encouraged I am by God's grace in your lives in this. You know, the, as the elders, we don't have to spend a lot of time just kind of helping individuals work through interpersonal relationships because you really are, by God's grace, living together with this humility towards one another. Please continue to do that. And, and I see God's grace in you in another way because you're, you're hungry for God's word. And so you gather together and you want to hear the truth of God's word. And as a result, there's this unity around the truth in this church. And I praise God for that because his grace is at work in you in these ways. Now, at the same time, as you look at verse 3, you notice that this unity is something that has to be maintained. You know, if Satan is constantly conspiring against it, if our own kind of sinful weakness is going to work against unity, well, then this is something that we have to work together to maintain in the church because it's very easy 
to allow brokenness over time to just kind of creep in and sin and disobedience. And it builds up into little things like an unkind word or, or feelings of bitterness towards someone else that's not dealt with or small acts of selfishness. All of that can add up over time to damage the unity of a church. We need to be eager to maintain. So, so think about it for yourself. Are there people in this church with whom your relationship is strained? Uh, just think about your own relationships here. Is there someone that, that really the Holy Spirit would speak to you about and say, you know what, really my relationship here isn't right. Well, what would it look like for you, brother or sister, to go to that person and talk with them about your relationship? What might that look like? Well, it might look like inviting them out to have a cup of coffee and just discuss the issue in a loving and forthright way. Now, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Right? Isn't that scary? That's scary to very, very many people. But if you, if you read through God's word, you see that the way we love each other, really the way we love our neighbors ourselves, is by loving them enough to go and speak with them about their relationship in an open and forthright way. I want you to hear that from God's word, from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, oh, friends, that's hard. In our own strength, that kind of love is impossible. But here's the thing. The love that we need and the love that by God's grace we have in this church is given to us from God. It's his love, and he's able to strengthen us to love one another with his love. So looking at verses 1 to 3, we see that believers are to walk, that is, live day by day in a manner that's worthy of the calling that they've received in Christ. And we've seen that if we do that, by God's grace, it will lead to unity in the church. Now, in verses 4 to 6, we see Paul lists really kind of some theological realities that, that underpin, that undergird the unity in the church. So that's the second truth. Christian unity is rooted in theological realities. I, I know that sounds like a seminary point. I got that. I couldn't come up with any other way to describe it. So we're going to try to unpack that. So what Paul does in verses four to six is so important because now he's talking about these relationships, the unity that we're supposed to express in the church, but he doesn't just leave it up there as if it's just his opinion. Instead, he points to theological truths to show us that by living together in unity, what we're doing is we're accurately reflecting the truth of what we believe. And so he argues that people in the church, believers, the people of God should be one that is unified, ultimately because God is one. And so he lists these seven theological realities that point us towards unity as something that should characterize us as the people of God. So let's look at each one of those briefly. First part of verse 4 there is one body. So Christians should be united because we are each members and parts of one body, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, for one part of the body to attack another part of the body is a tragedy, right? 
it's self-defeating. So there's a disease called lupus. It's a disease where a person's immune system will actually attack the person's body in different places, like joints or the skin or the kidneys or blood cells or the brain. And it's a tragic condition, but really it's an apt illustration of what happens when Christians attack Christians, right? Because we're attacking this one body. We're part of this one body. We're ultimately attacking ourselves in that way. And so it shouldn't be that way. Why? Because the body's one, because we're unified. There's a second reality in one spirit, kind of the second part of verse 4, and one spirit. So Christians should be united because they share the same Holy Spirit. So one of the things that Christians believe that's just utter insanity to people that are outside of the church is we actually believe that God himself dwells within us by his spirit. And we all share this same spirit. And we know who we used to be, and we know who we are now, and we know that we've got a really good explanation for why we're different. Part of that explanation is the fact that God himself has taken up residence within us to help us live differently than before. And here's the thing, we all share this same spirit, so it's this powerful motivation to live together in unity. We are spiritually united with every other man or woman who uh, has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing, and so we should live like it. The third reality, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So Christians are united because we all share the same hope. Uh, really, that word hope there really speaks of a destiny. It's not a, I hope this will happen. It's a, I sure am glad this is going to happen. And the hope we have is eternal life. So when you speak of the Christian's hope, you're referring to this sure destiny. The destiny is this, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So according to the Bible, the glorious truth is that I, when I die, not because I'm a good person, not because I've earned it, not so I'm somehow better than other people, but because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done for me, when I die, I will stand before God, I will see him face to face, and I will live forever in a perfect world. That's the hope that I have. And, and if you're a Christian, well, then you have that very same hope that we will live together forever in this perfect world will be marked by perfect peace. So now if we share the same destiny of this glorious future world, shouldn't we live at peace with one another in this present world? That's the idea there. We have this same hope, the hope that belongs to this calling. It's another reality, one Lord, first part of verse 5. Christians should be united because they have the same Lord, Jesus Christ. And Jesus has commanded us to be at peace with one another. So if you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, then we have a common leader. We have a common Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's another reality, one faith, kind of the second part of verse 5. Christians should be united because they have the same faith. That word faith there, it doesn't really refer to kind of putting my trust in Jesus, so that's faith. This is a different kind of faith. This is kind of the capital F faith. This is the religion. This is the, this is the faith we have. It's the content of truth about God and salvation that's been revealed to us in Christ in the Bible. Most especially, the faith is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We have one gospel. So what does that word gospel mean? Well, the gospel is a old English word that really just means good news. And the heart of Christianity is this gospel. It's this good news that God is a God who loves sinful, broken people like us. 
God is a God who offers his salvation, his forgiveness, his restoration of relationship with sinful, broken people like us. So the Bible contains hard truths. It tells us that we were created by God. Uh, God wanted to have a relationship with us. It was marked by love. God created us to love him and to serve him and to dwell with him. And yet our first parents sinned against God and rejected his good law. They decided to be better to live for themselves and to live for God. We sinned in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same nature, where from our very earliest moments, what feels very natural and what feels very right is that I would just be living for me. And so what sin does is sin just kind of turns us in on ourselves, and so we think about life in terms of how is all of this affecting me and promoting me and helping me get where I want, and the problem is that all of us are doing the same thing, and that's where all the conflict and brokenness comes from, because it's like having too many kings in a kingdom, and we're all fighting for our own way. And so we've all rebelled against God, and we've all hurt others as well. We have all done, sitting here this morning, everyone here knows that we have all done things that are wrong, and wrong at a very deep level. The Bible calls that sin, and the Bible says that that sin separates us from God because God is holy and we're not holy. And then the Bible goes so far as to say that there is no way for us to be good enough for God in ourselves. So I cannot make up for the sins I've committed against God. I can't somehow kind of balance the scales by doing more good than bad in that way because one sin is enough to separate me from the holy God forever and ever and ever. And so it feels quite hopeless until you realize the very heart of our faith is this gospel. It's this good news that what we could not do, God has done for us through Jesus. God the Father sent his Son into this world. The eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus came into this world to live a perfect life, the kind of life we should have lived, but we failed to live. Now, he always loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loved and served his neighbor as himself. And then in great love, he laid down his life on the cross. That's why Jesus died. He wasn't some tragic figure who had no idea of what was happening. He didn't somehow fall into a trap of other people. If you read through the gospel, he's very intentional saying, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then this one, who's unique in all of history, does it. He dies, and then he rises from the dead, a historical fact, changing everything. And the message of the gospel, this good news is this, that, friend, if you will turn from your sins and put your hope in Jesus and what Jesus has done, and the life that he's lived, and his perfect sacrifice, his resurrection, if you put your hope in Jesus and him alone, well, then that is how God restores people to himself, sinners to himself. Right? He did that for me kind of towards the end of high school, uh, showing me my need for a Savior. And if he's showing you that this morning, then we'd have no greater, no greater joy than just to talk with you about what God has done for us in Jesus. But here's the message. Here's the response. Here's the application. Friend, turn from living for yourself and put your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. And God will forgive you for every sin you've ever committed. That's why it's good news, because we don't have to earn it. It's a free gift. There's no better news than that. We have one faith, brothers and sisters. It's this glorious message of Christ that teaches us we should be united. A sixth reality, Christians should be united because they've all been baptized into Christ. That, that word baptism there really speaks of kind of the water baptism that we receive when we Trusted in Jesus, and we took water baptism as kind of the sign of that, the outward sign of that, and water baptism is the doorway into the church, and it's 
the reality that we've all been baptized, it shows once again that we are one, that we're the one people of God. And then reality number seven is that Christians should be united because they have the same God. And this is really kind of the ultimate argument. This is where he's kind of driving here. One God who is their father. Why should we live together in unity? Because our God is one. Now, if you read through this passage carefully, you'll see in verse 4 that Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, he talks about the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And then in verse 6, he talks about God the Father. It's not accidental. He's teaching us something here. He's teaching us that the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have dwelt for all eternity together in perfect unity. And as those who follow this God, we also, though many, have been brought into this perfect unity, and we should live like it. We should live in unity because we follow the one God. Let me give you just two kind of observations as we conclude this morning that kind of flow out of this passage. A lack of unity in the church lies about the character of God. That's what it does. It means that the church that is not committed to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace will fail to glorify God in the way God intends for her to glorify him. Because our God is not divided, our God is one. So we should be united. There's another observation. A lack of unity in the church devalues the gospel. So we're the people that proclaim this good news, this good news of Jesus. And this good news includes this reality that in Christ we've been gathered into one body, the church. But when we allow conflict and division to divide our body, we're lying about what the gospel does. We devalue Christ's work. Right before he died, Jesus said this in John 17, 20 and 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's this prayer, friends. Let me just tell you, Jesus' prayer was answered. You see, we are one. We have the same Holy Spirit. We've been brought into the same church. We are one. Here's the challenge. The challenge for us is that our sin often leads us to live differently than who we are. And so the motivation for us this morning as we look at this passage is to realize who we are. That we have been unified in Christ and so we must live like it. Well, friends, we say that that things behave according to their nature. We know that's true in the physical world. Uh, you see, as you read through the Bible, we've seen in this passage this morning that it's true in the spiritual world as well. We've been given this new nature, this new identity, all of which teaches us to pursue unity in Jesus. In Christ, God has made us one. And so he calls us now to live like it, to walk together in unity. And may God, by his Spirit, help us do that as we pursue him together. Let's, let's pray.